good evening everyone. My name is Robin Archer. I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics and really it's my very great pleasure to introduce our speaker, uh, Professor Jay Winter. Um, Jay taught for many, many years at Cambridge where he also did his doctorate and then he taught for many, many years at Yale where he, he still is. Um, and I think, you know, Without a doubt, he's one of the most important historians of the First World War. And that, of course, as everyone knows, is one of the great formative periods that shaped the world we live in. He's not someone who's written a lot about soldiers or battles. He's essentially a social and cultural historian, but in that rubric, he's ranged incredibly widely from his early work about the impact of the war on British socialism, about its impact on the health of the population, through to later work about capital cities, ideas of peace and rights, and especially perhaps to thinking about memory and mourning and questions of commemoration. And I won't go through all his publications, but suffice to say, I counted 25 books authored and co-authored and somewhat over 160 articles and chapters. I mean, it's a prodigious output, um, and it's a prodigious output which has had a great deal of influence. He's also produced an important documentary for the BBC, I think PBS as well, or was it a joint maybe? Uh, which won all sorts of prizes, and he's got all sorts of gongs and prizes. Most recently, uh, the President of Austria's award for lifetime achievement in historical writing. Well, he's going to talk to us tonight about some of his um, most recent thoughts, uh, drawing on that incredible experience and scholarship. And um, with the centenary commemorations coming to an end, I think you will agree it's a particularly appropriate time to be thinking about them. Professor Winter's going to talk for about 40 minutes, I think, something like that, and then we'll have lots of time for questions and discussion. So can I just start by asking you to join me in welcoming our speaker, Professor Jay Winter. Well, thank you for that, that kind introduction. It's a pleasure to be back in the London School of Economics. When I did my doctorate, I used to work uh, regularly in the past field papers and on RH20 and others. And, I simply want to say I couldn't possibly give a lecture uh, that would match what I take to be the finest lecture I've ever heard in this institution. In 1974, during a bit of trouble now that pales into comparison with Brexit, but it still caused some trouble then. It was called the three-day week, where electricity supp supplies were assured to all public institutions for three days out of five of the working week, but you didn't know which three they were. So in this institution, which, believe it or not, a long time ago, this is 1974, had rather dark and dingy lecture rooms. Perhaps some of you might imagine what that might be in the Dickensian history of this place. Uh, and in it came a very remarkable man uh, named Amartya Sen, who was going to give a series of comments on a book that later became his, his work, his master work on famine and, and poverty, uh, on the Bengal famine of 1943, which is, was his childhood as well. And I see now there is a chair in his honor, a uh, chair of uh, the study of inequality, and rightly so. And I went along to hear uh, Sen, and this is pre-computer days, so uh, as I worked in population studies and 
those were the days where you actually put the dots on the graph paper and made the lines join up and so on. And he had a stack of 20 maybe graphs and 30 uh, tables to hand out to show us that the age structure and occupational structure, the famine, indicated that it, it wasn't a problem of the lack of food supply. It was a, a demand failure that did it. Uh, and so people who were um, uh, landless laborers basically starved to death because they couldn't earn enough money to deal with the inflation of rice or the price of uh, food. The point I'm making is that, that when we, I got started again to hear a master, and this was long before he got the Nobel Prize, the lights went out. The lights went out everywhere in this institution because the three-day week was over, or shall we say the third day of the three-day week was over. And what Sen did was to give the lecture in the dark. And it's still the best lecture I've ever heard. And it, it occurred to me, when I think about silences of the Great War, all the things we cannot hear, all the things I could not see in Amatya Sen's lecture in this institution were luminous because of his sheer intelligence. And it was, believe me, if you imagine a great lecturer, a bit like a great musician, think, you know, of Yudi uh, Manuin, close your eyes, listen in the dark, uh, hearing uh, in a, what, a, what might be described as a, at a tangent to the world is one of the most extraordinary experiences I have, and it happened in this place and, um, and will be with me for the rest of my life. And I, I want to talk about, therefore, uh, as it were, a, a, a sense of dealing with uh, sensory deprivation. I want to talk about silence, uh, not about darkness, uh, not about all the things we cannot uh, see in the novel of that name, which is a wonderful novel, but all the things we cannot hear for a number of reasons. One is I want to draw upon the work of the philosopher J.L. Austin and to deal with a definition of silence as a language of memory. Austin wrote a wonderful book called The Things We Do With Words. Well, I want to talk about the things we do with silence. And in order to do that, I, I want to be able to talk to you about silence as performative. In other words, it's not the absence of sound, but it is a statement which happens not to have words attached to it. And if we think of silence analytically, if we think of it critically, I think we can see that many things are said through silence and by silence uh, that are very, very resounding. Now, let me try to uh, bring this to you uh, in a particular uh, context um, of my life's work. And um, uh, rightly so, um, I've been an historian of the First World War for more than 50 years. I didn't intend to be an historian of the First World War for 50 years. None of us knows the shape of our lives while we live them. Uh, it just simply happened. Uh, but in the course of that, I've worked as much outside of the university system as I've worked inside. Partly you talked about a television series, but, uh, which, which I'm very proud of. I think it was the very first time that cultural history became an integral part of the uh, public recognition of what the First World War was. Uh, it was 1996, 1997, and that has carried on substantially in many different ways. But I've also been involved in creating a museum of the First World War uh, called the Historia de la Grande Guerre at Peron, where the Battle of the Somme happened. And I want to talk to you a bit about that. But before I talk to you a bit about silence as a language of memory, I want to talk about what 
It is when we want to use the category of silence as historians. How do we do this? Many of my students are stupefied uh, that I've lectured now for decades uh, on silence as a language of memory because most historians uh, are, uh, deal with uh, the printed and spoken word, and rightly so. But as all of you who've done archival research recognize, one of the things that is most important about the archives we read is what we don't find there. What is left out or deliberately weeded out, which is the way the public record office in my time, now the National Archives, used to do it. Uh, I live now in, in Paris, and there they do it differently. But in the, in the National Archives, there have been documents that I've, I've known I have seen, and I have indeed copies of them, but they don't exist anymore in the record. Someone thought it's wise, wiser that they should not stay in the, uh, in the public domain. And who that, that uh, uh, um, person is, I, I will never know, but I can assure you of that. And I'll, I'll tell you about that if you want to know. But the important thing to realize is that silence is present in historical experience in many different ways. And, and we have to deal not only with the issue of people who don't start speaking, but we have to also deal with the issue of people who stop speaking about subjects, who refuse uh, to um, uh, enter into a conversation about something that may be too painful or too difficult. So what I want to do is to first of all say that there are types of silence that you should think about. And the first is the, the silence of those who cannot speak those who lost the capacity of speech or the belief that anyone is listening to them, uh, those who feel uh, that uh, they are unable to speak may actually have a physical reason for doing that. Think of the king's speech for a minute. And by the way, the man who helped the king deal with his terrible speech impediment uh, was uh, from Adelaide uh, and was an amateur physician, if the, that is not an oxymoron, uh, who dealt with um, men who were uh, deaf and dumb, some just struck silent by the First World War in Adelaide. He treated 55 people who were unable to speak and got them to return, uh, not entirely in many cases, but in part, uh, to the world of speech and to conversation. Uh, that's where the King's Speech comes from, and they, those men who could not speak were all over the world. But there were others who lost the capacity to believe that anyone is listening to them. If you read the letters of the Italian author Primo Levi, you'll find this. Uh, if you think that what you have to say is simply impossible to communicate, uh, then silence is your only option. If silence wasn't exactly his fate. It was simply financial failure of his first book, which now has become an icon. Uh, the, you know, the survival in Auschwitz, which is now published, I've noticed, in 82 different languages, initially sunk like a stone in its first iteration before Italo Calvino wrote a preface to the second iteration. But the first one, no one wanted to hear about Auschwitz because heroism, resistance, standing firm against the Nazis and the fascists, that was the, the, the message that people had ears for not passive suffering, even though I would agree with those who say that that's not what Primo Levi is talking about. Nonetheless, if there is no audience, like the sound of a tree falling in a forest, there will be no speech. So the first point is that those who cannot speak are a category that we know, and we come across certainly in the history of the First World War. But there are th those who choose not to speak, who have the capacity, but who make a decision to turn inward. One of them, whom, again, this was a sheer fluke. When I was a graduate student in Cambridge in the 1960s, I got to, to meet the poet uh, Ted Hughes, 
Um, he was interested in me for one reason only. His father had been shell-shocked twice, once at Gallipoli and once um, in uh, the Western Front. Um, and his father never, ever said a thing to his son uh, about what he went through. And this first terrified and then angered the young Ted Hughes. Some of his finest poetry is about this gap between father and the son, about the fact that when in the Hughes household, when the conversation turned to the war, Ted's father turned to the wall and literally wanted to say absolutely nothing. Now, the, the important point is that this is a choice. Is it because he was taciturn? Is it because he was introverted? Is it because he was embittered? Yes. Is it also because he was angry? That too. But the terror that this silence inflicted on his son was performative. And this brings me to the, the, you know, the, uh, the core of the argument. The argument, as it were, creatively misinterpreting uh, J.L. Austin's book on what we do with words is to say that silence can perform the conditions of what it speaks. Silence can give you much deeper information about experiences than uh, many of the words that are written about it. In fact, the Dada movement and others indicated that the most, the deepest silence are those in which there are too many words, too many hacked, hackneyed words, too many overdone phrases that have absolutely nothing done. That's why they de developed a language that has no words in it. Dada is a, a, a child's a series of verses. So there are those who choose not to speak, and we have to recognize why. But there are also, at a different version, and there I think we, we can see the distinction that I'm trying to make between people who stop speaking and people who don't want to start, there are groups of people who agree not to speak about certain subjects in public uh, or in private, who adopt a certain degree of reticence. Now, in some cases, you might indicate that this is just good manners, that you don't uh, go up to uh, uh, a cocktail party to a couple who've just had a nasty divorce and talk about it to them. There are certain r rules, and you know, I, I live in, lived in this country for an awfully long time, raised my children and grandchildren, they're still here, and I still don't quite understand, maybe one of you can explain it to me, why it is that the worst social sin in uh, English life is to cause someone embarrassment. Why is it so deeply uh, troubling to cause embarrassment? Uh, silence is a way of not talking about any possible subject uh, that could cause embarrassment to others. But sometimes it's much deeper than that. And let me try to show you examples of what this means. Let's see if I can get this to move. There it is. It's, uh, it seems to me that if we look at these, uh, this assertion that there are groups of people who agree not to speak of certain subjects, we can understand that silence is a social space created by those who decided that there are things on which they cannot and will not speak for very deep reasons. We are getting here into the realm of taboo, of social anthropology. Those who break these silences pay a price for their transgression. And once broken, silence or the unsayable can be the sayable, the disputable, or the visible, but it causes an awful lot of trouble. One example of this is a, a, a very distinguished jurist in Spain called Baltazar Garçon, who wanted to investigate crimes committed during and after the Spanish Civil War, during the period of the Civil War, but more people died, as an historian, distinguished historian of this institution has pointed out, more 
prisoners died after the end of the Spanish Civil War uh, than during it. Now, this uh, subject is taboo quite liberally, and uh, quite literally, and uh, Balthazar Garcon was thrown off of the Spanish Central Court because of his insistence on speaking about the unspeakable. So the social construction of silence has rules, norms, and punishments. However, it also has what I would call a half-life. It doesn't work forever. Silence can work for a generation, but there are younger Spaniards now who won't take the fact that Felipe Gonzalez and other individuals who constructed the new socialist order after the fall of Franco traded um, justice for peace. They want to go back to justice. So what I want to suggest to you is that there are many cases to show that silence has a history, and most of the time its rules last no more than one or two generations. Where do we see this in operation? Where can we locate, as historians, domains of silence, where archives exist, where we can actually do some serious research? The first one is uh, what I call liturgical silence. And there, in every church of which I know something, and I can assure you that I uh, cannot make uh, claims uh, for many African and Eastern religions, but the ones that I know something about, there is a, a silence that they all share, and it's the silence of theodicy. Theodicy is the question, if God is all-powerful and all-knowing, then how did evil get into the world? Uh, there is no direct answer to that in any theological text of which I know. Uh, there are metaphors, there are artistic works, the tradition I come out of, I was raised as a Hasidic uh, Jew in a, a, a family from Poland. Uh, the idea is that God somehow made space for the universe as we know it. What that means, I have no idea. And in the uh, creative material, the creative material that he used to create the universe was put into vessels and thrown into the space to create the universe in the Big Bang. And the, the force of creation of the Big Bang was so enormous, so immense, uh, that these vessels shattered and the shards of the vessels of creation that came to land on the earth uh, are evil. Uh, that's as close to metaphor as you can get, uh, but there is no re resolution of it. Political silences, I think we can all understand. They entail the burial or erasure of political crimes or errors that all countries have, genocide, persecution, and glorious acts, defeats. Uh, the genocide of the um, Australian Aborigines is one. I've recently been there, um, which is clearly a... Uh, uh, a subject for, at which at least half of the population uh, conducts political silence, and the other half is constantly uh, engaged in trying to break through. There is a third category, though, of what I call essentialist silences. These are ones that indicate that only certain people have a right uh, to speak about a subject. Only soldiers have the right to speak about war. Only Protestants can write the history of the Reformation. You know, one earlier uh, lecture I gave here many years ago uh, in the presence of Ralph Miliband, I contested the view that only socialists can write the history of socialism. This is what I call essentialism. That's it's something in your, in your viscera, your DNA, gives you greater insight. I've been uh, criticized because uh, I've done the history of public health and some work on infant mortality and child health and so on, that I can't talk about uh, maternity because I'm a man. Uh, now, the, these, uh, these positions are wider held than you may realize, uh, but they are all the enemy and the death of truth. Essentialism is impossible to sustain as, a, as a, an intellectual position, but they're there. 
and I'll come back to them. The final uh, area in which I urge you all to think about uh, whether you can do some research on silence is look at your own families. Uh, I'd like to make the broad claim that every family is defined by its silences. Uh, but there are many different social rules of comportment, many of them located among the women of a family. I've seen this in Germany a lot, which is that uh, women who are properly brought up never talk about family conflicts or difficulties, which of course has helped quite a few families escape the shadow of Nazism over the last uh, 60 or 70 years. Uh, I, there are many other examples that I'm sure that we can talk about. Family silences about child abuse, I think, are much more significant than, fa than the silences about uh, clerical child abuse. Child abuse is a product of family life before it is a product of clerical life. We may not like to think about it, uh, but uh, clinical psychologists have shown in one extraordinary study uh, in the Netherlands that over the last century, if you do a, f a study of the literature of, of sexual abuse, you'll find that 85% of the literature is about families unrelated to any other institutions entirely. Overwhelmingly, the problem of silence of sexual abuse is a family problem. Of course, they're related to each other. I'm not suggesting that they're not. All right. Let me now bring it to where you think I was going to go, because uh, I am going to go there. Namely, that there is a whole area of silences surrounding war. Uh, for example, the liturgical silence. Um, how in God's world are the cruelties of war possible? Uh, or better yet, what if God is not on our side? What if indeed uh, the positions that we take up are ones that are uh, nefarious, that are illegitimate, uh, that are based upon the lies that Tony Blair told and so on? Uh, there are many instances that we can talk about in which the, the issue of liturgical silence is a very deep matter. Uh, and it's, it's one that I think is still uh, Im impossible for us to get around. The history of war is the history of people who attempt to break liturgical silence. And they almost always fail. Almost always. Think of the history of sermons. The history of sermons is the history of sanitizing war. Of not talking about viscera on the uh, field of battle, not talking about smashed bodies, but of talking about whole souls. Political silence as well. Anyone who does the history of war will realize how do we deal with our war crimes or with the crimes of entering war without cause? Their pol political silences uh, about war are everywhere. One of them uh, that I feel particularly strong about, uh, strongly about is the, um, I won't call it a lie, but a, a convention uh, that the First World War ended on the 11th of November 1918. It's complete balderdash. The entire uh, world of from Finland down to Russia to Poland to Turkey to Morocco to Ireland was on fire on the 11th of November 1918 and yet we stand happily uh, perhaps uh, relieved that for British soldiers and for American soldiers and for Belgian soldiers and for French soldiers they could go home well they actually didn't go home that's also a myth uh, they didn't go home. They had to wait until the peace treaty was signed. But the Im important point is the First World War didn't end on the 11th of November 1918. And the political silence about the fact that British soldiers, including Australian soldiers, I might add, uh, alongside French, Greek, uh, Italians, 
uh, Americans, Canadians uh, invaded uh, Russia to overthrow the Bolshevik regime between 1919 and 21, and then probably the worst example of ethnic cleansing before the before the Nazis happened between the the Greek army that failed to uh, conquer Anatolia uh, and the reborn Turkish army under Mustafa Kemal Ataturk instituted in international law through the Treaty of Lausanne the thing that really did end the First World War in 1923, and then the the, the great ethnic cleansing, one million Greeks. Greeks, what do the Greeks mean? People who are of the Greek Orthodox faith, nationality defined by religion. The First World War ended in 1918, and all of this killing is going on immediately afterwards. It's a, what I would call um, a um, useful fiction. And useful fictions are silences about that which is uncomfortable. That instead of there being, uh, as it were, a uh, peace uh, without victory is... Um, uh, as Woodrow Wilson said he would got, got it, what he offered and the other leaders were uh, victory without peace. Uh, and the notion that the 11th of November uh, is the end of the First World War, in my view, is a political silence. Essentialist silences. I'll tell you a, a, a tale of 1983. I was asked to speak at the opening of a library at Sandhurst, the Royal Middle, Military um, uh, Academy, to open a First World War library in the name of Harold Macmillan. Then I was a young whippersnapper, only 30-something, um, and I spoke uh, about the lost generation, which is something I've written about over my whole lifetime. And the First World War means anything. It's the slaughter uh, of, uh, of uh, nearly a million men in British forces and so on, and over 10 million men worldwide. I finished that remark in, in front of a very large audience, including uh, Macmillan himself, who really did care ab about the First World War the men in the Durham Light Infantry with whom he, uh, with whom he fought, uh, and was uh, then um, followed by a First World War novelist, uh, Charles Carrington, New Zealand-born, London-bred. And he got up and said, in a, in a room bigger than this, uh, where I was sitting about where you are, uh, Ian, and um, said to me, young man, that was a fine talk, but I really believe you should choose another profession. Uh, you know nothing of the First World War. Only we know. Only we are privy to its truths. You shouldn't even try. And could you imagine what it felt like uh, to be in my shoes at that particular moment where there wasn't a bolt hole to escape from? Uh, I believe he was profoundly wrong, but he was saying something essentialist that only those who have been there can actually speak, who have the right to speak, and not only the right, who are capable of speaking about this particular experience. Now, the final area where I think we can find many, many different archives that talk about silences um, is about uh, veterans. And that brings me back to Ted Hughes. Uh, by the way, in the years that I knew him, I never used the word Sylvia Plath in his presence. It was, again, a silence. A terrible silence, um, terrifying in some ways, uh, but I felt that it was right not to do that, to intrude in a personal area of such pain. Uh, but he knew about silences, and he knew how families pay the price for the suffering of the men who come back from war. And I've spoken, I've given this talk to many different uh, British Army units, and they all know of which I'm speaking. They all know the widows, the wives, and children who pay for the failure of societies to recognize the long-term damage done to soldiers at war. In the British case, 50% of the um, services and payments 
available to veterans of Afghanistan or, or Iraq or, or wherever else uh, these individuals have served are not taken up because men don't apply for them. Is it because of stoicism? Uh, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. But nonetheless, there is an important point to realize that men who come back from war are damaged in ways that are not physical, and the societies that sent them there do not recognize the damage that happens to the people with whom they live. And I think you, we all know of, uh, of what I'm speaking. Now, what I want to suggest is if you can just be, bring that material, that uh, silence can be performative, not always, but frequently, that it exists as a set of social choices which are uh, like the um, in, informing of a taboo about certain subjects and indeed the penalizing of those who break them, we can understand that there is a way in which silence is embedded in all representations of war. Uh, and the first thing I want to do is to, is to try to show you something about how important this is in the public representation of war. In most of my, my active life, I've spent uh, a lot of time thinking about how to represent war in museum spaces. And of course, the, um, the, the great institution that set the terms of this profession of museology of war is the Imperial War Museum. It is one of the early ones. Indeed, there are others. The Australian War Memorial is a fascinating example in Canberra. Canadian War Museum, there are various others. But the Imperial War Museum is the locus classicus uh, of, the, uh, of the representation of war. And the Imperial War Museum, in my view, has made a complete mess of it over several generations. And one reason is the attempt to bring people who come with a series of very deep interests, some familial, some historical, to make them feel as if they can be there. They can actually enter into the experience of war. And one reason why this lecture is entitled All the Things We Cannot Hear is I don't believe it for a moment. If you think that by seeing this, this is a picture of what was called the trench experience where there were plastic rats and so on and uh, bits of uh, smoke that were going on, literally bits of smoke, you could see the, the particles coming out, that you are uh, somewhere adjacent to the, um, to the Battle of the Somme or the Battle of Ypres or whatever else it would be, uh, then think again. You know, much, much better was, was Black Adder, which was a deliberate attempt to stylize what the trenches were as a cliche rather than as a representation. The problem is, and I've, you know, I've taught uh, this subject to so many different groups of people, the Imperial War Museum has power. And I think what it does is inform a movement which is now encircling the globe. It's called reenactment. Historical reenactors are everywhere. And what they do is give people, usually who have the time uh, to spend and maybe the money to spend on uniforms, the sense that they are entering into a religious experience, the religious experience of combat, which is a limited experience. Now, this is a, wor a worldwide phenomenon, but where does it come from? It comes from many different places. Here's a French museum at Meaux, which is near the Battle of the Marne, where the first Battle of the Marne and second one was, too. Look what they're doing to the children. They're, you know, putting a little poilu, you know, French, the French call their soldiers poilu because they didn't shave. I think the British soldiers all had to shave, all the officers did. But the, the French idea of being a tough guy is, is to have a beard. So here we're giving the children some of the stuff, 
which could make them think they can really know what it's like to have been in the trenches of the First World War. And I believe that is not only wrong, but it's immoral. And it's a worldwide uh, phenomenon because of the extent to which uh, historians have remained silent about the lies that are told in public places. Uh, is it really a way of honoring those who go to war to sanitize how awful it was? And yet, and I'm talking in the millions now, millions of people go through the experience of learning about war as if they can actually be there. Uh, another one, this is in the uh, Flanders, in Flanders Fields Museum, and this brings me to, a, a, I think, an interesting divide. I want to make sure you understand me. I believe that in film, in theater, in fiction, in poetry, representing war is necessary. But in none of these representations that I know of, let's say War Horse, for example, Michael Merpurgo's War Horse, is, are you given the view that you are really there? That you are, in, in many ways, what, what made Merpurgo's uh, uh, War Horse so brilliant is that the horse, Joey, in the National Theater version, was a maquette. It was made out of, of steel wire. And two men under it were brilliantly able to recapture the cadences of, a, of an animal, of a horse. Absolutely brilliant. So representations of war, yes. But wie es eigentlich gewesen war, that the, you can actually go back and be in war, no. And in order to make this point absolutely clear, I want to tell you about a personal experience. In 1986... I was approached by a man named Max Lejeune, who was the president of the Conseil General of the Department of the Somme. His dad had fought in the Battle of the Somme in 1916 and came back home without a scratch and proceeded to make the life of his family miserable. He would beat his son and the same to his wife and so on. He was a broken man who shared that sense of being broken with his family. And the son, who became um, a middle-of-the-road socialist politician, Algérie Française, you know, right-wing politician, came to his old age wanting to make peace with his father, who had maltreated him when he was young. And so, given the fact that he was a, you know, a distinguished politician, and like all French politicians, have a feudal base somewhere in the country, and given the fact that his base was where the Department of the Somme, where the Battle of the Somme happened, and that his father had fought in it, he decided to put money together to create a museum of the history of the First World War. And he found a French historian to help design it, and a German one. And in the French and the German ways, they both handed it off to their best students. It's a typical feudal response. He came to this country, and he went everywhere. And I'll, I'll try to keep the names of the people who turned him down um, um, as another form of silence, of discretion. Although I can tell you that one of the uh, two of them are uh, indeed noble members of this institution. Uh, he couldn't find a single historian of the First World War other than me who could work in French. This might be, a, as it were, this is 1986. This is a prehistory of Brexit. Uh, the capacity of my students at Cambridge for many years to use foreign languages was strictly limited. And I will put it to you that my guess is it is still strictly limited. Working in the English language was what most historians of the First World War did until recently. 
there are exceptions, and notable ones. Hugh Strawn, for instance. But Hugh said no, he couldn't work in French. So of the three, what, 250 historians of the First World War existed somewhere in Britain, there was only one who could work in French, and you're looking at him, the bottom of the barrel. Uh, so I got the job to design a museum of the First World War. And like most other historians, I'm not trained in architecture or in public design uh, or in art. Uh, you know, everything was two-dimensional, uh, carbon paper, indeed, in those days. It was a shock to ask the question, how do you represent war in a museum space for me? It was a shock. And I remember taking my children on holiday to uh, Switzerland, which I've done now every summer for the last 38 years to the same place. It's a little village called Sils Maria in the Engadine, where Nietzsche wrote Zarathustra. If you ever want to have a glimpse of what paradise looks like, go to Sils Maria. If there is a paradise, it looks like Sils. Two days from Cambridge Drive, children 9 and 10, hating every minute of it. We stopped halfway in Alsace, and they asked me to do something for them. I said, can you do something for me? I wanted to go to a museum in, in Basel to see a painting I'd never seen, uh, which you're looking at. The painting is called Christ in the Tomb by Hans Holbein. And when I went up to it in the Kunstmuseum in Basel, it's no longer in the same room uh, now, but it's there. Uh, it was in one room alone. And when I saw that with one child, 10 and one 11 in my hand, in my, each holding a hand, uh, walking into the room, when I saw this painting, uh, I told them, your dad's got to sit down. It literally knocked me over. And the reason is, it was an epiphany. It came to me literally in a split second after seeing this, that the way you design a museum of war is by using the horizontal axis, and that the vertical axis is the language of hope the horizontal axis is the language of mourning. And I already had published for the previous decade and a half material on the lost generation of the First World War. Here was the representation. And what makes this a work of such genius is that there is no mitigating feature. There are no Marys. This is not about lamentation. There, there are no um, uh, uh, cherubs. There is no hope except through faith alone. Can you see why Holbein became Henry VIII's great Reformation painter? Because this is the Reformation. If you really believe, if you believe in your heart that this entirely dead man will rise within 24 hours, the way you do so is through faith and faith alone. It's an astonishing painting. And within a, a period of roughly six months, I convinced the other members of the group that was designing the museum that Max Lejeune wanted us to do uh, by using the horizontal axis and only the horizontal axis. Now, it's important, by the way, that I add a footnote to this. When he asked me to do this, I said I have a couple of conditions. I said one is we want to set up a research center first, in other words, to design the museum through historians, not just to use historians as decorative objects, but uh, to use them as designers. Uh, and he said yes, and he opened up his little book and said, how much, combien? I wish I had added a zero or two to the sum I had told him, but nonetheless, it was historians who did the design. The second thing I asked him to do was to have a drink with me when it was done, because I wanted to make sure he knew from the beginning uh, that I believed that his effort to find peace with his father would not be successful, because memory doesn't heal. It's not therapeutic. Memory is neutral. It can open wounds as much as it can close them. Uh, but it's not something that you should use because you believe in therapy. Six years later, we had that drink. And 
indeed, that is what he said. Now, let me try to show you how we turned uh, the, uh, the object of a uh, museum uh, into the horizontal. And let me try, therefore, to show the interpretation of this essay uh, is that silence is the language of the horizontal. That's the linkage with my lecture today. I want to suggest that silence has a geometry and that in the course of the 20th century, we have seen this in many different places. If I could give you another lecture, I would do it, about how commemorative art has become flattened, that the verticality of 19th century affirmation of the noble, phallic, heroic male over the course of the 20th century has been in tension with the horizontal, frequently to the point that it, it literally is brought down to earth. And if you want to see examples of that, some of you probably did. Some of you, like me, went to the Tower of London and saw the poppies. What a tapestry of the lost generation. Entire carpet, literally, as horizontal as you can get it. 880,000 ceramic poppies creating a carpet of the loss of life in the First World War. Some of you, I presume, have been to Washington to see Maya Lin's uh, Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Literally flat and into the ground, descending into the ground, just like these foss. Foss are little dugouts, maybe, I don't know, 10 or 11 inches deep. They're oh, five feet, six feet long. And in them, what we did in the museum at the Historia de la Grande Guerre was to uh, put the objects that soldiers used, real objects. There's nothing phony. There are no plastic rats in the Historia de la Grande Guerre. And there is no sound. It is those two issues that I want to draw to your attention. That silence is the language of mourning. And muse war museums that are not languages of mourning are missing the essential element of the story. By the way, the other advantage of this, this is the very first transnational uh, museum of the First World War. It was paid for by the French, entirely by the French. And now, to my great delight, the French state has taken over from the department uh, its funding forever. So long after I'm gone, this museum, uh, which I, you know, with others, of course, but which I, I designed, uh, is going to be there for the foreseeable future. And commercial issues are, are real. You know, you, saying that is an achievement. But what we wanted to do was to show that you know, the same lice powder and toothpaste and, uh, and, and uh, uh, gas masks and so on that the German soldiers did in this particular uh, trench were there in the French or in the British ones. Uh, we also wanted to show, as, uh, I, I think this is a, going to be a, whoops, no it isn't. Thank you. <laughs> oh, well, I'll, I'll use my finger as a pointer. These are video screens that show all of the objects in use in film of the time. So you can see everything that is on the ground uh, being employed for the purpose of defense, for the purpose of attack, or whatever else it is that you want to you deal with. And the link between these 57 born video and the FOSS, I think, makes the difference. And once again, do we see the, the tension between the vertical and the horizontal? It's the very first museum where the horizontal axis is the central feature of the architecture of the building. And it was definitely not to the taste of the Imperial War Museum. And what they said was, look at these. Children within three minutes are going to jump in and destroy the items. And they took out the items that they had loaned us. Uh, it's now 30, uh, no, 1992 is 20, 
seven years. Not a single child or adult has broken the aura of these fosse. Of course there's an alarm system to protect it if there would be such an event, but in the course of 27 years, uh, these uh, ways of representing war have stood the test of time and of very large numbers of school parties. And I can assure you 60% of the 250,000 visitors that we get every year uh, are school people. And what they do is to take a look at these uh, dugouts and realize that they have either an archaeological feel or that they look a bit like graves. And it's that, once again, which uh, reinforces my, my view that the most important feature of this museum is the horizontal and the language of silence that accompanies it. Now, here's another example of it. This is called the Salle des Portraites, and it shows portraits of ordinary life, and behind it are the very difficult and deep, uh, caric uh, not caricatures, etchings of uh, Otto Dix who fought there, called Der Krieg, the, the war, 53 of them, which show you know, awful features of the war. And we do hide them, and it's possible that some of the children should um, you know, have, uh, not view these systematically because they are very, very difficult to see. But once again, uh, I want to reiterate that my emphasis on the horizontal as a, an appropriate language of representation of war and silence as part of it uh, is in tension with the vertical, is in tension with earlier ways of looking at rep representing war, uh, which I'll come to in a minute. All right. The final point of my, my comments are about humility. Uh, every historian whom I've ever known uh, who's been creative knows the limits of the craft, that there are things that we can't know, that we don't know. Some of them can be broached by particularly ingenious individuals. But there are all kinds of subjects, in my view, that are beyond our representation because they have very difficult uh, problems of evidence. And what I'd like to suggest is that for those who believe in reenactment, for those who believe in getting back to exactly what it was, they are making a ghastly mistake because they think that we actually know more about the First World War than we do. For example, the sound of animal suffering. There's a very interesting collection of soldiers' writings in Churchill College, Cambridge, where uh, a number of uh, men in the cavalry who didn't have that much to do because the Battle of the Somme didn't happen the way it was supposed to are constantly writing home not about their suffering but about the suffering of their animals. And that shouldn't be surprising. Eighty percent of the men who fought in the First World War were, were rural people. Animals were part of their life. They were, they were everywhere. Uh, but what they write about in particular is the, the horror of hearing animals suffering. We can hear that only, as it were, uh, through a wall uh, silently. There are areas of ex the experience of battle that I believe are simply, utterly, and completely beyond us. Here's another one. On the uh, day that the Treaty of Versailles was signed, the French premier, um, Clemenceau uh, knew that the German delegation, none of whom was consulted, they weren't negotiating partners, they simply had to take it or leave it, were brought to the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles to sign, like, uh, you know, schoolboys to be punished. And it was a dramatic performance 
of the humiliation of defeat. No doubt about it. And we all know that Harold Nicholson writes about it. A lot of other people write about it. Silent. It's all silent. So what happens? They open the door, and Clemenceau had chosen these five men who had lost their faces in war, the Gulcasse, to confront the German delegation with what they had done, what was their responsibility. Here's Article 231 engraved in the faces of these men, that Germany and only Germany was responsible for the uh, suffering of the First World War. Uh, and there are two uh, particular delegate, delegates who wrote about the silence uh, that uh, accompany that moment when they open the door and they enter the space where there are hundreds of people waiting for the sign and they see these five men and nothing happens. Quite literally, nothing happens. Now, what does this sound like? What does this silence tell us about the hatreds and indeed the punitive nature of that particular moment? Let's see if I can make this go further. There we are. Here's another one. Um, some of you might have read um, Hemingway's wonderful account uh, of Caporetto, uh, Farewell to Arms. Wonderful. He wasn't there. And the genius of it is that he could do it. He could recreate this as, as, uh, as fiction and representation. I'm happy, you know, none of this is criticism of, of Hemingway. The issue is, if you really want uh, to write about Caporetto, um, what does an army in defeat and retreat and chaos sound like? We don't know. And there's a wonderful letter from a particular Italian uh, physician who talks about the um, extent to which these exhausted soldiers, understandably, walked past his particular casualty clearing station for six days uh, and not a single word was uttered. Now, what, what does it sound like? What does an army in retreat sound like of this kind? Here's the Ossuary at Duomont, Verdun, where the bones of the Battle of uh, Verdun were, were tept, kept together. Every time I've bring, brought students uh, to this particular site, uh, there's only one thing that, that one can say. Uh, we can't reproduce. Uh, we can't know uh, the nature of the encounters that happened when all of these bones, which are German and French bones, only recognized as such, by the way, three years ago in 2016, uh, uh, what that meant. What does it mean when, when you come to a site like this? Uh, what words are appropriate? Uh, silence seems to me to be a much more powerful ex instance of, uh, of um, representation of what this is about than any words that I can think of. And here comes the reenactors. Well, the ones on the right, by the way, are Polish, uh, and they reenacted the Battle of Tannenberg in 1914, uh, 100 years later. Uh, the uh, Christmas truce, these are good Londoners who are uh, engaging in recreating the football match. Uh, now, what I want to suggest is that these reenactors uh, are uh, betraying uh, the men that they're representing. They're turning history into entertainment. And war was many things, uh, but uh, entertainment is, uh, shall we say, at the margin. Of course, there were entertainments of all kinds. But the notion that these individuals can recreate battle uh, is indication of their absence of humility in the face of the terrible difficulty of representing war, and especially of representing war for the public, and in particular for representing war to the fee-paying public. This is an industry. It's a worldwide industry now where people engage in writing about the First World War, in, in, in reenacting the First World War as if they could hear it. And what about this one? This one, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. I actually was near there when this happened. 
In 2017, there was a reenactment of the charge of the light horse uh, Australians uh, at Beersheba. The problem is, according to public health laws now in, in Israel, uh, horses can't gallop, they, so they have to just trot. That's not quite what it was. But furthermore, they had to wait in the sunshine. You can't tell how hot that was until various important politicians came, several aged people had heat stroke. And finally, out they came reenacting the Battle of Beersheba with the Israeli flag in front of them, uh, which of course wasn't a reality until 30 years after the particular event. The, the notion of turning history into entertainment is one I want you to think about. Uh, it matters. So my conclusions are these. The first is, I do believe that silence is a very important subject. It's one that historians rarely treat. It is a subject that has archives, that it has domains, that it has places where it happens. If there are lieux de mémoire, as the French historian Pierre Nora put it, there are lieux de silence. There are places where silence can be observed, not just Trappist monasteries, but families, uh, political meetings, you know, just think about all of the things that aren't said during the Brexit debate. There, you know, many of the things that are said, perhaps we can all recognize, but it's the unstated, the half-stated, uh, that bring that particular subject that is present in all our minds uh, into the area of my own uh, remarks. But the final point is this. We historians have gone through now the commemoration of the centenary of the Great War, and there's been an avalanche of words, an avalanche of words that has been produced by it. I don't think the centenary added very much to what we know about the war. I think it restore, reinforced traditional stereotypes. There were one or two exceptions. My student Christopher Clark did something important, uh, contested, that's right. There are other people who, uh, who made statements that were new. I think so, but by and large, the First World War is now not history, it's myth. It's a place where people reiterate stories that they hear about it, that are told to them, and sometimes performed to them by, by reenactors. Of course it deserves better treatment than that. Uh, and will it get it in the next few years? I don't know. I, I can tell you as someone who's still involved in an ongoing museum of the First World War that the commercial pressures uh, for infotainment, for entertainment, for turning history into entertainment are very severe and very important. They're, they're all based on the view that what, what people want when they go to historical sites is infotainment, is total immersion in the event of the time. And my claim in the title of, of, this, of this talk was, was quite deliberate. It seems to me that we have to recognize all the things we cannot hear and to move one step further, which is, I hope, a daring step that you can all reflect on, uh, and to realize that some of the most powerful statements that we can make about war are made by not saying a word. Thank you very much. Well, thanks so very much. Um, we've got a, about half an hour now for questions and discussions, so um, I turn it over to you. Um, just when I call you, can you wait for the microphone and just briefly say um, who you are and where you're from for our massive podcast audience? Just hold it up to your mouth. So, you know. Stimulating talk. Um, I just wanted to ask you two questions. First of all, as an Orthodox Jew, I know that one of the most powerful responses in the Bible was made 
you may know about this also, um, was made by Aaron, the, the high priest. When he lost his two sons, Nadav and Avihu, uh, the Leviticus says, what we would call the Torah, says that, in, and his response to that family tragedy was, and the Leviticus says, and Aaron was silent. And that was a response which goes back, you know, millennia, you know, to the fact that he has suffered a great bereavement, tragedy, that he lost his two sons because they brought strange fire to the sanctuary. And apart from making that point, I wanted to ask you whether you could extend in any way what you talked about today to the Holocaust, um, which is more recent and perhaps even a more profound tragedy. Well, I will take your, your questions um, seriously, and I, I believe they're important ones. On the first ground, there's a, I think there are many different ways of realizing the extent to which the, the subject of, um, the tragic subject of loss of life in war is uh, beyond words. And one of them is uh, Maimonides, who said that the greatest form of prayer is silence. That to be silent is to, is to offer the closest thing to what we know about the limitations of the human uh, capacity to understand the, the world in which we live. But there's a, another extraordinary moment, um, which I think will speak to what you said. In Kings, there's a, a section uh, where uh, the King James Version of it differs completely from the Hebrew. And the people who did the King James Version were very learned men. They knew exactly what they were doing. And the, the phrase in, in Hebrew is a call de mamadaka. Uh, that means a thin uh, voice of silence. Uh, Cold voice de mama, silent daka, very thin, wafer thin, basically is what it means. And what does it come out in the, in the King James Version? Uh, the still voice of silence, a still voice of conscience. That's how it's translated in the King James Version. The still small voice of conscience, that's exactly the phrase. And, uh, it, you know, it went into a... Uh, uh, an archive in Cambridge to try to figure out whether there were any way to, to crypt this because they knew very well that they were mistranslating. And the reason why they did it was this was a hidden message to Catholics to say, if you keep your prayers silent, that is to say not in the public domain, you can keep your heads on your shoulders. The problem with martyrs is they can't shut up. Like, you know, they, they speak too much. It's, if you worship in silence, the still, small voice of conscience will enable you to be consistent with the realm. And in 16.4, this is, you know, uh, Guy Fawkes terrain. This is a serious, this is a matter of life and death. So the issue of silence becomes an issue of conscience. And, of course, that's a Protestant matter. It's a very interesting uh, notion of... Uh, but these translators understood that the Hebrew could be interpreted in a way that could lead to social peace in England. So the, the Hebrew is, is, a, is an interesting and a complicated matter, which I, which I share uh, an interest in uh, uh, with you entirely. On the, on the second issue, I can say two things. One of them is um, personal. Um, the, I didn't realize that the reason I've been an historian of the f uh, 50 years, or 50 years of the first, uh, historian of the First World War for 50 years, 
I didn't realize it until much, much later on in my life when I had children and who, who ask questions that are awkward. Um, that the reason I've written about the First World War is so as not to write about the Holocaust, because I can't go there. My mother's family was wiped out in Warsaw. And if I were to write about that, I wasn't sure that I could control, as an historian must, the emotional investment in a subject. So I've been silent about the Holocaust all my life. I, I think I've written one essay, and in fact I was speaking earlier, I've, I've helped a friend finish a book about a group of um, German and Austrian um, refugees who wound up in England and then were interned and deported, called the Dunera uh, boys. They wound up in Sydney in Australia in 1940, 2,500 of them. Freud's grandson, Walter Benjamin's son, all kinds of people. Uh, and I finished it because he died, and he was when he was dying, I promised him I would do it. And this is the first time I've written about the Second World War. I've never had the language to talk about the uh, uh, years of my early life in 1945, 46, 47, uh, where there were there, there were many different forms of silence. Not everyone was silent at all by any means of those who came out of them. Uh, but they all didn't talk about it. There, was, there were forms of indirection that were quite astonishing when I grew up, uh, where everybody realized, since my grandfather had 17 brothers and sisters, every one of whom and their, and their children and their grandchildren were murdered, uh, there was no way to talk about it. So I, t I take your point seriously, that there is a very uh, difficult subject called silence surrounding the Holocaust or in the Holocaust, which personally... I have found dominant and therefore have persuaded, or I was persuaded and still remain persuaded, somebody else is going to have to deal with that subject, not me. But that all said, I, I do believe that the uh, notion of uh, creating a language to describe what happened uh, in the Holocaust is still a matter for the future. The word itself, for example, is impossible because it's a Greek word meaning a ritual sacrifice where the object sacrificed is entirely devoured by flame. That's what it means in Greek. I'll refer to it in the Hebrew, Okay, no, even Shoah. I'm, I'm, I, I, I'll take that one on too. Uh, Holocaust, there was absolutely nothing sac uh, related to the ritual sacrifice in the uh, Holocaust. It's, uh, the word Holocaust is just terrible. It's the worst deformation of whatever it is that you think happened. Shaw is this pillar of fire, you know, following, uh, uh, or indeed a pillar of smoke, uh, following the children of Israel. What in the world does that have to do with, uh, with what the Nazis... What I'm trying to describe is what I think um, a great uh, Australian historian, Inga Clendenin, wrote in a book called Reading the Holocaust. The Holocaust is like a black hole, which the more metaphors you throw at it, the less meaning you get. The more you try to use representational language the less you get. Now, I, I don't believe that's true for the First World War. I believe we have to be humble. Really, humility is the message of that lecture. We can't know. There's so many elements of the First World War that we can't know. What did the Russian Revolution sound like? You know, it was literally, what, we know what the myths look like and so on, but what, what was it like on that first day when Lenin and Trotsky woke up and they were still alive, which is something they weren't sure about? There are many issues that I believe are less true about the First World War than about the Holocaust. I think we're still looking for the right word to start uh, what it might be. Uh, I don't have it. I personally don't have it. Uh, and I will be very much uh, in gratitude for, for whoever figures it out. 
Okay, um, perhaps we'll have this gentleman down the front. Hello. Just wait for the microphone and if you could just say who See you why are. silence is better? <laughs> Many years ago I read your uh, book, uh, Armenian Genocide in American and German uh, documents. It was very impressive. But my question actually, what about the designated silence? Because in retrospect, in your book, uh, Germany as a state and also United States were kind of silent about what was happening during the time because clearly you know they were beneficial in a way for you know various reasons what's happening in the Ottoman Empire uh, but uh, one variant of the silence is also contemporary which means contemporary, which means uh, for example today if uh, uh, Turkey does not criticize uh, what's happened in Burma or other type of imperialist uh, atrocities or genocide than the West, for ah. example, in return, you know, kind of silence. So this is designated or, you know, silence with design uh, in a way. So uh, in this sense, uh, in the history, silence continued, but also in modern times, which is continued. So this is kind of, you know, two sides of one coin. But another side, uh, side is uh, for the public, uh, there is silence because there is ignorance. And uh, as you know, these issues are quite uh, polemical and overloaded with certain ideologies. So my question towards the end, uh, do you see any uh, competent uh, historical writing in the world at the moment, quite independently, uh, free from nation states? Well, what I, what, I hope, what I hope is a fair answer to your, your question is this. Between, I think, you know, I'm 73 now. And I, actually, I thank my, uh, my parents um, at one family occasion for having conceived me when they did in 1944, because it meant that I would come of age and go on the job market at the moment of the biggest expansion in higher education that the world had known since the Henrician Reformation. And what's more, I thank them for having conceived me in such a way that after I entered the job market, I would reach retirement uh, exactly on the centenary of the outbreak of the First World War. It was very clever of my parents to do that. Uh, and what I want to say is that what happened in my lifetime is the creation of a group of historians whom I call transnational historians. They're people who were born in one country, educated in a second, and frequently teach in a third. Uh, this was a function of a vast expansion of education. It's no longer possible, and, you know, but we should realize that sociologically there was a trebling of the number of people in higher education between 1960 and 1990 and a trebling of the jobs for those who, 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 who taught them, and I was one of those. I was one of those who benefited from that precise issue. So I urge you to recognize that you are now in the London School of Economics, which is a transnational university, I'll call it that, which involves people from many different countries who are trained in different places and have more than a national outlook. And it's because of the existence of this generation of transnational historians that we have transnational history. Now, transnational history is a, a subject for a whole other lecture, which I could give you. Of course, I edited the Cambridge History of the First World War as transnational history, quite literally, because I believe transnational history is a better way of writing national history. It's not the opposite of national history. It's a way of saying what Kipling did a century ago. What does he know of England, who only England knows? Now, transnational history is there. 
And it's there in particular in the First World War, in the writing about the First World War, because of this extraordinary spread of scholarship all over the world. You know, and one of the things I'm, I'm, I am delighted that the centenary of the First World War is over. I have to tell you that. It was too much, and a lot of it was pure kitsch. But some of it was really terrific in reinforcing this notion that you don't have one national voice. You're here. We're speaking English. We're talking about subjects that are transnational in character. And one of them is the Armenian Genocide. Uh, I've spoken many times in Turkey on the Armenian Genocide in public uh, with uh, heckling, no doubt about it, but, but freely. I've been allowed to say what, what I believe happened. And quite a few of the younger scholars uh, that I've known, Kurdish scholars as well, uh, believe that the Armenian Genocide is an established historical fact. Now, there are those who contest it. And I understand that. But what I'm trying to say is, because of the existence of transnational history, I've had my say. I've been able to come and speak. I wanted to have some help in going into the military archives in, in Ankara, in Istanbul, to do it. But the problem was, every time we had a commission to go into the military archives of the, of the uh, Ottoman army, the archivists were arrested and were thrown in prison. Uh, the military men who were in the position of helping us, you know, so politics intersected that way. But that hasn't stopped the development of the subject, uh, uh, which I, you know, I think is a very positive issue, including in Turkey. Now, if I were Turkish, I might have been, been endangered by, by violation of the law, insulting the national uh, heritage, insulting the nation. But I'm not Turkish, and the Turkish historians who were, you know, as sure that I was wrong, as I was sure that they were wrong, were happy to let me speak. And I respect, you know, I have to say, I really do respect the Turkish historical community for, for doing that, because they didn't stop me from saying what I wanted to, what I wanted to say on the basis of the archives that I've seen and the basis of, of the evidence that I've developed. So, yes, there is history beyond the national. The answer to your question is absolutely, and in particular, there's history beyond the national in the period 100 years ago that I'm, that I'm studying. It may be less the case, and here we go back to the Holocaust, or whatever it will be called one day, um, in the Second World War. It may be harder to do transnational history of the Second World War. Uh, I've, I've spoken in, in Ukraine, in Lvov, it used to be called Lemberg, which used to be Austrian, then it became Polish, and now it's Ukrainian. And they have very substantial differences of opinion about what happens immediately in 1918 and so on. But they're prepared to hear a non-Polish, non-Ukrainian, and non-Austrian point of view. And when you have that openness, then I really believe history can survive. And, 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 will, and I think will survive. Uh, but what do you do about the Second World War? You know, the, just to show you why this matters so much, the, in Lvov, in, uh, which I hope some of you visit, it's a beautiful city, uh, there's a public cemetery, and in it is a, a monument to the unknown soldier of the Polish-Ukrainian War of 1918 to 20. So it's a Polish monument. And the Ukrainians were so annoyed about this that they decided to build a second unknown warrior of the Polish-Ukrainian War, Ukrainian. The problem was that I understand. That's, that's national history. The problem was it's right next to the graves of about 100, maybe more, men of the Galicia division of the SS that fought alongside the Nazis as Ukrainian soldiers 
in the Second World War. Brody was a very big battle in the Ukraine in 1943. And who were next to the people in the Galicia division of the SS, who were Ukrainian? The men who died fighting Putin in 2014. Uh, when you get to that level, then I think you're right. National distortion is inevitable, especially when the Second World War isn't over, when it, when it carries on. Uh, but the First World War, I believe, is a place where we can do this work, and we're, which we have. And I'll, I'll stand by the three volumes, you know, 2,500 pages of the Cambridge History of the First World War to say transnational history is alive and well. It's not everybody's choice, but it's there. Okay, let's try and get a few uh, more questions in. Um, I think we'll have this gentleman and then there's someone at the back and people, everyone should feel free to ask questions, of Sorry. course. Thank you, sir. Uh, that was a wonderful uh, presentation. You, you said you're not writing about World War II because you somehow are an indirect participant and you can't keep a professional distance from the subject. Yes. On the other hand, the essentialists say you cannot write about something that you haven't participated in. So how do you reconcile this and who should write history? That's my first question. The second one is, what do you think of the internet and especially social media being used these days as sites of places of historical contestation in negotiation? Like pretty much everybody can do, can write about whatever they want. So what, what do you Okay, well, the, the two questions are, are of a different order. The, the first part of it I don't have any trouble with. I, I do believe that all historians have reasons why they write about what they do. Just some are prepared to tell you what they are and others aren't. So the, the myth is they bury an objectivity. I don't, I don't believe in it. I believe that we do our best and every single statement that I've ever written has a footnote attached to it. Someone can go and read the document and say, did I get it right? There's, there's a, a truth test in the writing of history, which I think is important. So the, the issue of, uh, of admitting that there are reasons why we write about subjects and there are reasons why we don't write about other subjects, I think is, is a general statement from, I've had, now it's 103, my final, my final tally of PhD students who got through the doctorate under my supervision is now 103, oh. the last one submitted yesterday. Uh, and those individuals uh, all wrote about subjects for their own particular reasons. What I do not agree with is the essentialist view. I don't think these, I think essentialism is intellectual suicide. Once you say that you write about something because of who you are, not about what you think, uh, then I think we're in, in uh, a non-intellectual uh, terrain. Uh, and it, it becomes... Um, a form of character assassination to attack someone for not being the right kind of person to write about the subject. I choose to be reticent about certain subjects because I'm, I think my own feelings might overwhelm my judgment. That's possible. Uh, and I believe other people probably do the same. Uh, I'm not worried about that. On the issue of the, the Internet, I'm worried that the Internet is part of this, uh, what I would call, infotainment business. Um, that almost anything can be turned into uh, a, uh, a film for amusement, including uh, the massacre of Muslims in Wellington, uh, in Christchurch, New Zealand, which went on online right away. So the, the notion that, that violence is um, easily uh, captured on a cell phone and therefore distributed around the world uh, renews my, uh, or re reinforces my argument uh, that when we 
deal with violence, we have to be very, very careful about what it is that we're doing. Uh, uh, a representation of war in a book, or in an article, or in a museum, or in a film, they're, they're all the same. We have to be very careful. The unrestricted, therefore uncensored, uh, use of violence on, on the internet is something I don't believe in. Because I don't, I don't think freedom of speech exists to, the, to that extent where you can show, let's, let's do it this way, a, a man who um, films a, a rape that he's committing has no right to distribute that on the internet. He has the possibility, obviously the technology is there. But it's, there, there are limits to free speech when we, when we are dealing with violence and the suffering of others. What else is the history of war if not the history of suffering? So I chose a separate example, although of course they are related to each other. Uh, I, I believe it was the um, International Criminal Court for Rwanda, which was the first one to, to establish that uh, rape is a form of torture and war. Not in peace, but in wartime. So the, the overlap is there. But So the internet is a tool that can be abused. It can be turned into a repetition of the suffering of others and therefore I don't believe that it should be left in uh, the hands of, uh, uh, of Facebook or whoever it is who's controlling it. There, there are rules that we need to enforce in our representations of violence. That's where I've started uh, and where I think, uh, I, think I'll, uh, I would have to end. Okay. Uh, this gentleman's back. Thanks very much for the uh, great lecture. It'd be great to hear more on transnational history one day if you wanted to come back. Um, my name's Ben from England, and um, you mentioned at the start that there, in the archives some, some particular documents were taken. Yeah. Are you able to shed any light on some particular examples and, and what you think the motives might be and if it were on the Great War? Yeah, well, the, the, uh, I'll give you an example of this. This is, this is an important, you're raising a very important issue and one that I can't claim to know in detail. I know about it in one specific case, which was bizarre. Um, uh, an e a quantitative historian who was at the City University um, after Cambridge, uh, Roderick Flood, phoned me in Cambridge a long time ago, and he said that uh, during the Thatcher years, uh, Mrs. Thatcher wanted to destroy the archives of the file of the two and a half million men who were disabled in the First World War to save money. There, were, there was a repository in Nelson in Lancashire where they were in another one. And if they closed those two down, they would save X thousands of pounds. Um, and the burn order went out to destroy all, and you know, this is wildly before the centenary, went out to destroy every one of these two and a half million files of the men who were disabled in the First World War. And they began to be put into burn bags. Uh, and those burn bags had, well, I don't know, maybe 4,000, you could put 4,000 files in each one of them. And in putting them in, one of the people in Lancashire uh, who saw them realized that these were not just the medical histories, but also the military histories, court-martial records and so on, of individuals. And so he phoned a colleague in the Ministry of Defense and said, do you want your part of each of these records before they're burnt? And he said, before they're what? Uh, so the Ministry of Defense says, you can't burn the military records of these two and a half million men. Um, who's, who's decided? Well, Margaret Thatcher decided that. All right. 
So somebody phoned a journalist in the Times, and all of it got out, uh, and the result was stop, burn, order. Uh, at that moment, the issue was what to do, because some of them had been burned. Uh, how much, I'll never know. But the, the Flood turned to me as a person who'd worked on The Lost Generation and said, can you set up an archive of a statistically significant sample of these files in order to be able to provide readers uh, at the public record office a hundred years from now with some idea of what the range of disabilities were and what happened to them and what happened to their families. I said, yes, I can do that. And I did it. And it's there now. In the, you, can, you can see those files. However, after the files, you know, after I set them all up, at some, some of the court-martial records went. And I know I put them in there. <laughs> Physically, I put them into the individual files. They went. Now, someone must have made the decision that the, you know, the court martial records are supposed to be 100 years, and you know, that wasn't 100 years by then, but they were in the archive. They were there. And the rule that I found in many other cases is the, you, you don't seek out to create an archive of that which is under 100 years rule, but if the materials are all there, for instance, there were x-rays. Uh, there were lots of personal materials, syphilis cases, all kinds of stories that were there. I created a, an archive as it should be. You take the rests, the that's a French word for the, the remainder of what an army left about the people who had suffered disability in the First World War, you construct a, a cross-section of what it, what it looked like and what was done for these people. And I'm, I'm proud of what I, I did, and it's there now. But somebody else thought otherwise. Now, why is it that they did? Well, I think the answer is the British Civil Service Code of Secrecy is very deep. Um, and what documents get preserved or not is something that you may know more about than I do. There's a, there's, there is a serious issue about what gets into the public record office, not necessarily what is taken out of it, which was, in my case, a, a very special example, since I was able to create the archive. But what happens to uh, files? For, for example, do you think anyone will really know uh, the cabinet discussions about um, the weapons of mass destruction? Uh, that uh, in the Blair cabinet, my guess is a lot of those discussions have uh, have gone up in smoke, or maybe weren't even on paper in the first place. I'm not sure, but uh, that's the, that's the clear answer, and I can assure you that weeding is something that we all I think is that uh, would you share that view? We all know about weeding. Now we're almost out of time. Um, perhaps if we can just have. Short questions and yeah, very sure. short answers. Yep, um, I'll do I might just take uh, who is waiting to speak? Yeah, there was a gentleman there. There's in the middle. at least two people yes. here, I think. Is, is there anybody else? Yes. Three. So if you just make three very quick questions and perhaps selectively make some comments. So uh, with the hat, and then. Hi, I'm Alex Mayhew. I'm a fellow here. Um, I had two points one about experience, which is the other side of cultural history, and how we can gain glimpses of silence in the experience, the subjective experience of the First World War. But I, I'll have a short question, which um, the Historial is probably one of my favorite museums of the First World War, if not my favorite, and um, the caveat being they did give me a scholarship, so I'm not saying that because they paid <laughs> me to do it. Um, I don't know what you would think as one of the, the founders of Historial with this idea of the horizontal and silence of Peter Jackson's new film, where they reintroduced sound to a film which was silent, and what that does to our memory or perception of the Very past. important question. Okay, thanks. Let, let's try and keep them quick. Yep. Uh, it's just a comment on mm -hmm. pottering around at the National Archives. 
The records you refer to are probably MH160, the uh, medical files that were previously with the Medical Research Council. The, uh, the suppression of them continues, yes. and it's continuing on two ways. Firstly, by putting the more gory details now on freedom of information requests only, because a number of uh, British soldiers' bodies were physically the subject of pathological tests. Yes. And secondly, which I haven't seen flagged up in the historical literature, the new GDPR is coming out to push the limit for the disclosure of medical records to 125 years That's rather right. than 100. Uh, I know people who have pushed the FOI on the medical records, uh, but they found it a struggle. And myself and other people who go to the TNA quite often we do notice that what's supposed to be there is is still a subject of negotiation. Yes, absolutely. Okay, and just very quickly, if you don't mind, um, this gentleman here. <coughs> Wonderful lecture. Um, I, I, this is a short question, but it's a bit may take a bit of time. Do you think that there isn't a lies, <laughs> lies told in the public domain should be criminalised? All right, so we've got Peter Jackson, we've got records, the criminalization of lies in the public domain. I, didn't, I don't know Peter Jackson, but in a discussion in, in New Zealand about this, uh, I said, don't do it. There's no need to do it, because first of all, there's a whole series, he, he got professional lip readers. Uh, uh, I think they're called, uh, um, well, anyway, they're, they're, they work in, uh, for, the, for the courts and also for the security services. And, trying to see what people are saying who are of interest to the police. And they're professionals, I have no doubt about it. But what he did was to introduce working class accents. This, this to me, is the, is the problem. The coloration, I, don't, I think he did a brilliant job on. I think that's absolutely superb. The problem is going into speech is right at the borderline uh, of uh, the unknowable. Uh, and and it, it, it seems to me that what he's done is positive. I'm happy to support what he did, and, and you know, indeed, what he did in New Zealand. I don't know if you were able to get to uh, to um, Wellington, but this this thing called the scale of war is absolutely brilliant. Uh, but at the same time, this temptation to make it real is is where I think my my entire remarks. I think we should be sufficiently strong in our scholarship to accept the limits of humility that we can't do it. We can't get there. And in fact, instead, what we should realize is that the fact that we can't hear their voices may actually be a positive uh, part of our own uh, discussion. The, the final point is, uh, no, I don't think uh, lies uh, should be uh, criminalized, because otherwise the House of Commons will have nobody in it. Um, politics is about, uh, is about lying. History, we are in, as historians, are in the truth business. And I do believe any historian who lies should be barred. And the, the, you know, the, the classic case of the, uh, uh, the David Irving trial um, is, is one in point. I think there are ways of saying that historians who break the professional rules uh, by you know, f forms of Holocaust denial or whatever should be barred from the profession. Fortunately, he was bankrupt. That was the nice way of doing it for him. Um, but but, I, but I, th I think the bar should be much higher for historians than it is for politicians. 
Listen, thank you very much. I mean, we've heard a, a really interesting lecture tonight. I mean, it started by talking about silence as a language of memory, both in general and in the particular case of, of war and the First World War. And then you, you moved on to consider how that interacts with sort of, in some ways, quite practical questions about museums and commemoration and uh, set forward the proposition that we should reject the idea of history as, as entertainment and reenactment and immersion and instead put forward the, the very interesting idea that there's a geography to commemoration and it's somehow horizontal. Um, I think there's much food for thought in this lecture and I thank you again for coming and I ask you to join me in thanking our lecturer.